So let me talk about the coin toss because this drove me crazy for years. You don't bet on the coin toss, you bet on who gets the ball. And there's huge edges that you could find in the NFL. Who gets the ball, who's going to punt first, who's going to score first, who's going to win the first quarter, because some NFL coaches would defer and some NFL coaches would go ahead and take the ball. Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm Matt Landis and this week's conversation is with professional better Steve Fezzik. Steve's claim to fame is being the only two-time winner of the Super Contest, in fact he pulled it off in back-to-back years, but that's not all. He's also a two-time South Point champion, he tied for first in the Leroy's College Football Contest, and is also a two-time finalist and the Stardust Invitational. So Steve's about as acclaimed as it gets when it comes to sports betting, and we dig into his wealth of knowledge, including how to respond to major breaking news as a better, plus an in-depth NFL preseason primer. We also touch on some regular season angles, including insight you're not going to hear anywhere else on the coin toss of all things. And we also touch on college football, including why Steve's specializing in the Big Ten this coming season. From there, we get into the betting content space, getting some unique insight from Steve on what it was like working with the legendary David Malinsky, and also a candid perspective from Steve on selling picks and working with pregame.com. To wrap it up, we touch on Steve's top advice for bettors, including the value of developing a broad skill set, and we also get into some edges beyond the betting boards, going into the lifestyle side of things with some tips and hidden gems in Las Vegas and Southern California. And one last note from my conversation with Steve, we recorded our interview on Friday, August 6th, and as his last word, he mentioned a baseball bet that's no longer available. I can confirm the number was out there at the time of our recording, so I feel bad about the value being gone before this episode was published, but I'd encourage you to consider this one more reason to follow Steve's work on Twitter, at Fezzik Sports, as well as other podcasts he's on, which I've linked to in the show notes, if you'd be interested in valuable bets and information from him all year round. I also have an exciting announcement off the top of this episode. If you can tolerate me more than once a week, I'm hosting the new BetUS NFL show. For some context, BetUS is the first sportsbook I signed up for back in my betting infancy, and I'm thrilled to be hosting their new NFL show and get to work with expert analysts Las Vegas Chris and Scott Kellen. In terms of what to expect, we're going to put the focus on substance over sizzle, but make no mistake about it, we're going to have some fun and we're going to break down picks, and along the way our emphasis is going to be on the process from two of the sharper minds in the space to help you think more like a winning better. The plan is to do two live shows each week, Tuesdays at 5.30 Eastern, 2.30 Pacific, as well as Fridays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. In fact, our first show is today, if you're listening on the day of this episode's release. We'll be previewing the AFC East. You can tune in live on the BetUS NFL YouTube channel. I've dropped a link in the show notes. And regardless of when you're hearing this episode, these videos will live on YouTube, so you can also check it out there anytime, and the shows will also be released in podcast form.
One more housekeeping note before we cut to the interview with Steve. For free picks driven by analytics and thousands of simulations, check out the Cutting Edge Quick Picks section over at Dimers.com. I've dropped a link in the show notes for reference so you can see where you want to get down on the Dimers Bot's biggest edges across all the biggest sports. And now, enjoy my conversation with professional sports better Steve Fezzik. Steve Fezzik, welcome to Props and Hops. It's an honor to have this conversation with you, and I'll cut right to the chase. In my last interview, I made the glaring mistake of having the guest ask when we could get to the hops part of this. So let's just get right to the beer. It might be unique for you starting off an interview on that note, but what are you drinking today? So I've got a Bahama Mama, Bacardi, and I'm opening it up. All right. Love that sound effect. Um, I will I will open a beer and toast you as well. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Um, and for a bit of context for, for listeners, and I can show you the can. I can talk about it so people can hear about this beer. It's called Timbo Pills. It is a West Coast-style pilsner with mosaic hops. It's made by Highland Park Brewery out here in Los Angeles. And it comes in at 5.8% ABV, but it's really the total package because like any good Pilsner, you want something crisp and refreshing. But with the hops, it's also got some really nice flavor. It's a little floral and earthy, but also has some nice citrusy tropical notes. So got to say it's making for the ideal sidekick for a conversation with the ideal guest to talk some NFL betting. Sounds good. All right. Well, we will talk plenty of NFL, but I'd also love to touch briefly on your background to set the stage for the conversation. I know that you have plenty of chess in your background, as well as a previous life as an actuary. And it seems like there might be a lot of probabilistic thinking involved in both of those. I'm wondering how that might have prepared you all along for your career now in sports betting. Yeah. So back at Northwestern, I studied industrial engineering, lots of probability and statistics. Had a friend, Dan Winslow, who was an actuary. He went to Northwestern. He was actually on the chess team as well. And I played with him in the Pan American games my freshman year at Northwestern. We did very well. And I became an actuary and utilized a lot of probability statistics. I basically did what I'm doing now. I took incomplete and imperfect information, got the best data possible, did a forecast for the future and projected what would happen with people in pension plans now I just do it with what people will do in NFL and other sports betting venues. Awesome. So when you started to transfer that over to the NFL and, and other sports betting opportunities, what ultimately went into your decision to go pro? Because it seemed like you had a pretty good thing going in the LA area, if I recall correctly, and and moving to Vegas. I don't know if you had family at the time, but what was that whole process like making the transition to becoming a professional better? Sure. So I did have a good gig in downtown Los Angeles, was working for Transamerica. Um, Ultimately, I was in the defined benefit business, which and defined benefits were slowly going away. So long term, it wasn't something that I really was going to be able to um, be in a growing industry. And frankly, what happened is I started betting football and every Friday during football season or every other Friday, I had a partner that went when I couldn't go. I'd go to LAX. This was before 9-11. And I just drive to uh, the parking lot adjacent to Southwest. I literally would leave at noon. I'd have a 1.30 flight at LAX. I never missed it. It was that easy. 
Um, you wow. zip through security. You park in the uh, in the in the parking lot on the surface there. You don't even have to take um, a shuttle bus. And I was going to Vegas and making more per hour easily betting sports in Vegas. And Vegas, this is nineteen nineties, was so backwards back then. As an example, it's been pretty well documented. Parlay cards, everyone just said, oh, parlay cards, complete sucker bet. And they were arguably the very best bet you could make where stale lines were on the cards. Northwestern was plus 21 and a half against Illinois. The line was down to 17 and they were cutting in line to bet plus 17 and a half at the counter. And I'm like, you could just take your time, fill out as much plus 21 and a half as you wanted on parlay cards. And myself and others did very well for a period of about five to seven years before the books started taking some severe countermeasures. Yeah, what an intro to the the life as an advantage player and something you do now as a professional better is also, I think, sharpening your mindset when it comes to reacting to breaking news. And I'd like to jump right to a recent example in the NFL, the Carson Wentz injury news, a little more than a week old by the time people are hearing this, but I think we can frame things in a way that can also give some good forward-looking insight. And for some context, you gave a really good instant reaction on straight out of Vegas on Friday, July 30th. So I'd recommend anybody go back and listen to that breakdown. My purpose here is to advance rather than repeat that conversation. And one of the things you touched on was that for sports books, the rule of thumb can often be not to overreact when we get this kind of news. But there might be a bit of a blind spot there because with quarterbacks and how important they are, that's probably an exception uh, in a case where they almost can't overreact relative to what the market might want to do. So what's your approach to breaking news like this? And when you're trying to place bets like, you know, maybe taking the Seahawks against the spread week one, Colts regular season one total other, a lot of other things you can do immediately, but also maybe taking a moment to weigh the unknown that, hey, there's still time for them to possibly trade for somebody else. Now we've got some Philip Rivers rumors. No one scenario of a trader Rivers coming back is likely, but but those are still possible. So how do you weigh the advantage of stale numbers versus the risk of some unknown actually elevating the Colts down the road? Yeah, so the news we get on last Friday is that Carson Wentz is injured in practice, looks pretty significant, might miss some time. That's the incomplete information we have. Well, Carson Wentz isn't a good quarterback. I think I've got him rated number 21, but the Colts have no backup quarterback in Jacob Eason. They have a really good roster. Their season win number is 9.7. And I'm like, oh, it's got to be off the board completely or it's moved tremendously. And then they get reports. No, some books still have it up. Some books still have it at 10. Don't want to overreact. And I'm like, you've got a below average quarterback that's going to be injured. You have no backup. How can we not react severely to this? Why are Why is everyone not max betting the Colts under 10 minus 20 playing, like you said, Seattle plus three plus two plus one pick them week one uh, playing Tennessee to win the division plus a dollar 25. There's so many as you walk through your derivatives that are possible. And the reason they're not doing it is that they're too busy trying to like find five cents of extra value with Colorado hosting Miami or the White Sox playing at Chicago. And so the pros are disconnected. It's Friday. It's five o'clock somewhere. They're probably drinking their, their hops and not paying attention. So because of that, I was shocked. You had a long time that you could have gotten down on the on, on the Colts. And I would argue if you are an investment mutual fund betting the NFL and you don't have some Colts under in your portfolio, you better have been on vacation because you had plenty of time to get it. 
Yeah, well, and on that note, this probably isn't going to be the last big surprise we get with injury news that might shake things up as we approach this season. So to keep this more forward-looking, I'd like to review some of the low-hanging fruit that people can keep in mind when it comes to getting down accordingly when we get this kind of news. Of course, we can look at week one lines, playing the opponent against the spread, going under on regular season win totals. But because this is lower-hanging fruit, it typically is quick to get pulled off the board. It's interesting that some of those Colts numbers lasted longer than we might have guessed. But there are some secondary bets that usually stay up a little longer. So if you want to look further down the menu, things like, uh, in this case, again, the Colts, not to win the division, not to make the playoffs. Um, I know people have mixed feelings on the Titans, but if you're bullish on Tennessee, you could look at a division opponent and say yes to win the division, yes to make the playoffs. So is there anything else like that where if you miss some of the numbers that come off the board first, you still might have a longer window to get down on advantageous bets further down the menu? Sure. If you like Jacksonville or Houston, you could have played Houston over four wins, Jacksonville over six and a half wins. So, you know, the problem with that is it's only impacting one eighth of their, um, or I guess slightly less than one eighth, two seventeenth of their um, season, as opposed to impacting half or the entire season, you know, for, for the Colts, you know, the Philip Rivers thing is interesting because he wasn't bad last year. He wasn't good, but seemed like by all accounts, he was ready to retire and the Colts were not unhappy with that retirement. Are they really going to go ahead and say, Hey, you know, when you're done coaching high school football with your 19 children, you know, maybe you can come on back in, but I can tell you the markets would react more favorably to that news than them getting foals or getting somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. I think Rivers, for a while, his arm strength was dwindling, but just, you know, maybe a bit like Drew Brees, they were later on in their careers, but some of just, whether it's the veteran savvy, reading a defense, making it work without the strongest arm in the league, I think there was some value there that might be in play if he makes a comeback. But whether or not Rivers returns this season, one more thing I wanted to ask you on this topic would be the notion of being able to get down on some really advantageous numbers without raising any red flags that could get you limited or kicked out. So how do you manage that balance of getting in while it's good, but not overplaying your hand? It's very difficult because you've got to make bets like this. They're just too good not to make. Example, um, today I'm betting the Mets to not make the playoffs at Pick'em. Um, that's a great bet. I mean, you just have to make that, that bet. And I'm kind of late on that bet, I might add. The books are going to be unhappy when you're winning and ultimately you're going to get kicked out. Um, I think it's Spanky that like put out the food pyramid, the better pyramid that he shows you need to be able to, if you're going to play the top of the pyramid, I, I might've inverted the pyramid, but the bottom line is you're going to play, if you're going to play lots of props and season wins and things that are going to win 70% of the time, you better have a whole lot of bread and butter stuff as well so the books don't feel like they're just being cherry picked and frankly the books the old school and and we've had this with books where they just like no one could possibly win this guy played every single side in total on the mlb board today he he can't be a winning better but what they're mistaken is i'm only doing that for cover i'm doing that you know when against you know a dime line the house has a 2.3 percent edge yeah, if I make some good calls, maybe I can break even, maybe I'm at a 1% disadvantage and I look like a complete action junkie so I can get away with playing all these props. Got it. Yeah, a lot of good insight there. I'd like to transition into a bit of a preseason primer. We're going to be just a couple of days away from preseason week one kicking off when people first hear this. I know we've had the Hall of Fame game in the books already, 
but you did a really good breakdown on your approach to the preseason on the latest episode of the Dream Preview podcast. So once again, I'd encourage anybody to listen to that. And here we'll try to advance rather than repeat that conversation. One of my bigger takeaways was the way you just laid out the approach, you know, a really high level view of, you know, it's okay to pass on the preseason if you're too busy or a lot of books have one to $2,000 limits and that's low for some betters. It's also okay to go ahead and bet it because there can be some really big edges in play. It's not necessarily just for degenerates. What's not okay is to write off the preseason as unbeatable because it's seemingly so random. It's random enough that the books hate pricing it and a lot of the syndicates will ignore it because of those low limits. So that can mean a lot of opportunity for the rest of us. And one wrinkle in that equation that I wanted to ask you about would be surface sports. I feel like I'm giving props to them almost every week. They're just running things at a really high level over there. But for the Hall of Fame game, they took pretty big limits. They had a $20,000 limit on the side, $3,000 on the total, $10,000 on the money line. So when you see a book, go ahead and take some big bets like that in the preseason. Does that change the dynamic at all for you? It's a great question. And how well Circa will do, I really is dependent upon how well that they can recruit recreational players, Charles Barkley, um, players like that to go ahead and bet against them into their big limits because they will not beat the pros. They're going to get beat up by the pros with those big limits. It's inevitable just from information that's breaking. Um, Matt, if you were playing against yourself, Matt Bookmaker versus Matt Better, Matt Better would win because Matt Better gets information and you can't be monitoring every game and every injury 24-7. So you're going to get caught with weather reports and things like that. I'm actually, it's a mystery to me how sports books um, like the DraftKings, the FanDuels are spending all this money in advertising. I'm like, and they have somewhat weak lines. So they're going to get beat up. I'm like, how is this a business model that's viable with all these great bonuses they're giving as well? And it's a little bit myopic of me because it's almost like I go in and play blackjack and it'd be easy for me to say, oh, this casino deals really deep and they have really good rules. Everyone's going to win. Well, no, everyone's not going to win. And all the recreational players like that they're constantly in action. There's less shuffling and the, the deck's being dealt deeper and they're going to get buried. So who cares if 2% of, of the players win big when 98% are going to wind up losing? Yeah, well, hopefully to keep the preseason is less of a losing endeavor for a lot of bettors. There are also a couple of trends that you outlined when breaking down the preseason approach. And generally, when I hear trend, that's a bit of a red flag. I think they can often be very informative as to what happened looking back. Not always so predictive when we're talking about covering spreads looking forward, but I'd be uh, really interested in breaking down a, a couple with you. One that you shared uh, came from Bernie Fratto, new head coaches in their first preseason home game, 21-6 and six against the spread. And I totally get that motivation. I do wonder why the sample size should get cut off at 27 games or um, how we might know if and when this does get priced into lines. When you get a trend like this that's hitting at such a high rate, how do you look at the sample size and, and knowing that eventually in an efficient market, it's going to get priced in versus the fact that it has been hitting at such a high rate in the recent past? Yeah, it's a great point. Whenever I look at a trend, the first thing I look at, does the trend make sense? I don't care that the Bengals under a harvest moon that on a Thursday night game are undefeated the last 12 games. The trend has to be something that all things being equal, I think yeah, that's probably a pretty solid play. And a new head coach at home, so it's a crappy team, more often than not, looking to sell tickets preseason. It makes sense. New head coach, 
questionable in terms of his coaching acumen, doesn't want to come across looking foolish with a poor performance, probably puts a little bit too much weight on winning, putting good product on the field versus evaluation of talents. So that all makes sense. So the Bernie Fratto trend, just play in August, a new head coach, first home game, go ahead and bet on them. And probably the most severe move of that was, you know, the Jaguars that opened plus four hosting Cleveland for the life of me. You tell me why Cleveland was laying four. I mean, I, I, I could not understand. And again, it's easy to pass post. I hate people that pass post. And I, I was, I put this out to the industry. I don't care. you got it in your wallet. I don't care that you um, like something minus seven and the line's minus 11 and you still lean to minus 11. All I care about is the discussion of at minus 11, who do you like? The rest of it is largely irrelevant unless it's, it's duplicatable. In this case, it is duplicatable. Um, I gave out Jacksonville plus three on the dream pod on straight out of Vegas said this line makes no sense to me at all. It has to drift. And then right angle sports released it. Now Jacksonville's laying two. I'm not really sure who I like at minus two. I probably would still lean to Jacksonville at, on the money line. I do think Jacksonville will win the game. Yeah, you presented a good case for the Jags. I remember that. Also, the Hitman, previous guest on this show, shared a really good handicap. I believe that was on this past uh, Dream Preview episode. So, yeah, I, I think at this point, what I'm looking to do, some sports books will still let you tease in the preseason at really low totals without charging more than they do in the regular season. Wouldn't want to do that with a favorite coming down because one and two are, are much more common landing numbers in the preseason. But if you can take a short dog up through seven with a total in the low to mid thirties, that should probably be a lot more expensive than teasing an underdog up in the regular season when the totals are higher. Yeah. 0-1 with the Dallas Cowboys on the hall of fame game yep. with a 31 and a half total. Um, I got saved on that one just because the sharp money late was on Pittsburgh and it kind of went to 2.65. And when you tease perfectly fine to tease a two and a half, as soon as it starts almost going to three, five dimes to flop a three. So I, I don't know what the teaser odds are at five dimes, but I'm sure there's some people that got smoked teasing the three up to 10 with a seven point teaser. Yeah. When it was three, nothing Cowboys at halftime, it almost felt like it was too easy, but whenever anything feels too easy, then you can probably guess what's coming next. Well, so. uh, some people would say that the Steelers minus 125 on the money line was too easy, and, and ultimately it did get there. And I know Sharps delayed 130 on the second half with Pittsburgh last night. Yeah, yeah, the Steelers money definitely paid off. Um, circling back quickly on the new head coach trend, I would say my ultimate takeaway, I appreciate the way that you framed everything and, and making sure that a trend checks out logically, not just that it's data mining for the sake of data mining. I, I would think that if I'm looking at a team that I'm I'm probably going to back. And as part of the research, I see, okay, they have a new coach in his first preseason home game. That could be a bit of a nudge to go ahead and pull the trigger. Conversely, if I'm on the fence about a team that's playing against a new head coach in his first preseason home game, that's probably a slight nudge to stay off and just pass on that occasion. So maybe not enough to blindly play on a trend like that, but enough to use it as a nudge in either direction. Does that sound fair? It does. And I should also mention there's a thing called statistical significance where you want to find something that you could prove is like within two standard deviations is statistically significant to a 95% level. And none of that, or rather knowledge of that is going to lead you down the wrong path. And the problem is survivorship bias. Example, uh, contests, super contest winner um, was the best NFL handicapper of the year. 
80, but the sample is only 85 games. And it just has not been predictive for the most part going forward. Whoever wins the year before typically picks a little over 51% the following year. How can that be? A guy that's at 70% can't even pick 52% the next year on average. Well, it's because if you randomly have 3,000 people enter a contest, someone just flipping coins, at least one of them is supposed to hit over 70% just from the random aspect of it. You know, the best example I can show of randomness Oh, I think it's Schlesinger wrote blackjack attack and it shows like four blackjack players, all winning players playing for, for years. And one guy's like up 50,000, one guy's down 70,000. Now blackjack's extreme because your, your edges are minimal when you're an advantage player in blackjack, but the mere fact that they can play, think about a blackjack player, he gets 40 hands an hour. Um, okay. About 85 hands in two hours. So every two hours, He's getting a trial of 85, essentially a complete NFL season um, for a contest. And so if he plays a thousand hours, that's like a 500 NFL season sample. And there's wild swings in terms of guys that will actually lose for the year, win for the year. So when people ask me, how big a sample do I need to know a sports better wins? I would say infinite. It never gets large enough. So because of that, a much better go-to is look at what the guy is having me recommend bet and then look at what the closing number is. And I better have that CLV, that closing line value. And that's a, that's a pretty good indicator. It doesn't mean you're going to win, but if you don't have it, I think it's a great indicator. You're going to lose. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like most bets that I make, if I don't have closing line value, I can almost write it off as a loser as soon as it kicks off. And if I do have closing line value, then I feel like I've still got a chance. Yes, and, and but be careful with closing line value. If, if Raz gives out, right angle sports, gives out a play minus 16, all right, and let's say you got a little late to the party and you lay 16 and a half, and it goes up to minus 18 and then winds up closing minus 17. Think about this. Despite thousands of followers, or maybe it's hundreds, I don't know, probably thousands, um, and copycats, that line only went from 16 to 17. If you asked me right before they kick off, what's the correct line on that game? I'll be like, it's probably 16, 15 and three quarters, because just by his uh, reputation as past success, when Raz releases, I would imagine on average, his lines are going to move two points. So if you've got one that only moved one, even if you beat the closer, I would be pretty confident on those plays. You're going to get the worst of it. Right. Yeah, totally makes sense. That's good. Next level insight there on closing line value. And one angle on the preseason where I imagine you probably already have some uh, pretty good bets in place that will give you some good closing line value would be week one totals looking at some overs. You mentioned that in 2018 and 19 games went 19 and 11 to the over and the first week of preseason play, the average line on the total was 36 games landed on average at about 42. So that's a pretty big delta there. Once again, just to play devil's advocate, I, I know 19 and 11, 30 games, you just talked about sample size. That's not really that big in the grand scheme of things. I'm wondering, is there any underlying logic that you spotted that led to 2018 and 2019 giving us higher scoring week ones in the preseason compared to previous years and why that might continue this year without being fully baked into the number? Sure. NFL is a totally different animal. The scoring has gone up significantly the last five years. It's a passing league. So ultimately, in preseason, coaches recognize I've got to work on the passing game. So they're, they're not going to be looking to establish the run, the good coaches, because they know they're going to win with passing. And with the brand new league, I don't care what the data 
was back in 2012, just in recent times, when the odds makers gets the, the totals off by 5.75 points, like you said, average actual scoring just below 42, but was dealt 36 in, in back-to-back years, all of a sudden I've got to take notice and say, you know, they haven't adjusted enough. Further, there's only three preseason weeks this year, so I can make a case that week one no longer could be a throwaway week for some coaches because now with only three weeks to prepare, I would expect, if anything, there'd be a little bit more of a sense of urgency to play a little more of your um, your starters week one. Yeah, makes sense. Again, looking for some underlying logic and the trends. We'll have to keep a close eye on when that's eventually priced in properly. I think maybe it ties in with your point about closing line value. If you've got some underlying logic and it continues to beat the close, then you're probably in good shape regardless of whether the results are 19 and 11. If your closing line value is 19 and 11 and and you're hitting it, not just beating the close, but beating it by a good margin, then that's ultimately probably going to be a better indicator of your long-term results. Yes. And again, it's um, the closing line value, the question no one asks, well, I can't bet at at post, right? Because how am I going to beat the closer when I'm betting against the closer? So, you know, there's exceptions to the rule. And certainly if the public is all on one side, uh, let's look at the U.S. women last night, for instance. So it opened 16 and a half and they closed 19 in their game. They win by 20. But I'd make the case that 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 probably was a case, all things being equal, you'd have to bet against the U.S. women saying "Mm, that game was in the middle of the night. And well, I guess it was at 930 our time. And it, it steamed up two and a half points. So that's probably public money coming in on the U.S. Yeah, it got there, though. It won. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if a ticket cashes, that's in one sense, that's all that counts. But but on the other hand, with the big picture in mind, there's a lot more to it than that. And a lot of different dynamics and angles and play that go into making a long term winner, a long term winner. And on that end, there's one more preseason angle that I wanted to touch on that you, uh, I think, spoke to really intelligently, that would be buying on or off of one for 10 cents, that being unique to preseason, of course. Basically, an example here would be if you're looking at a favorite, instead of laying minus 110 at minus one, lay minus 120 to get them to pick them. If you've got an underdog at plus one, minus 110, lay $1.20 to get them up to plus one and a half. Um, Are those examples correct? And is this widely available enough for people to get down on? Assuming it is, could you shed a little bit of light as to why that's worth it in the preseason, whereas it's not during the regular season? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you don't even have to buy the half points. So like when Pittsburgh was laying one and a half, you could play the money line minus 125. So you, um, which which equates to essentially being the same thing as buying, you know, down to minus a half. Um, And the difference in the dynamic is just no team, the memo is out. You don't want to go overtime. I really never understood that why you wouldn't want to go to overtime. I think it'd be a good opportunity to evaluate talent. But nevertheless, the NFL coaching brethren have sent out the notes, don't go overtime in preseason. And because of that, any team down seven that scores goes for two. Any team that's savvy that's like down um, um, three with a fourth and one tries not to kick a field goal to tie the game. Um, so three becomes much less valuable because of the going for all the twos at the end of the game. And even like last night, so Pittsburgh, they, they kicked the extra point, right. To go up 13, which normally we would just host Tomlin. It's certainly possible. Tomlin was just unaware along with the staff because he's not a good game coach in terms of decision-making, but I'm going to give him the, the benefit of the doubt saying, Hey, we don't want to go overtime. Whereas 
any other time an NFL team up 12 would go for two. But even if they did, the other team's going to go for two and um, to, to keep that out of overtime. And because of that, the most key number in the NFL, I think one, on or off one, is more important than three, although it's probably very close. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So for people looking ahead to preseason week one, we've got the Eagles currently laying one against the Steelers coming off their Hall of Fame game victory. A lot of other games in the range of pick them to minus two worth monitoring. That could be a, a nice way to carve out an edge that, again, doesn't apply during the regular season. But now, I guess, for three weeks leading up to every season could be a unique angle buying on or off the one for a price that's more than worth it. So, Steve, I appreciate running through some of these trends. I know a more general framework for your approach in the past. You've talked about looking at mobile quarterbacks or coaching tendencies, 0-1 teams playing 1-0 teams in preseason week two. Um, are there any insights you'd like to share along those lines or anything else that I'm missing when it comes to the broader framework for your approach to betting in the preseason? I think week two, the team that lost playing a team that won, no coach wants to go winless in the preseason. And coaches largely don't care all that much about their win-loss record unless they're named Harbaugh. So Harbaugh, of course, well-documented the 17-0 straight-up run. The idea here is that probably you want to bet the 0-1 team against the 1-0 straight-up team and ideally get them on the road because home field is usually overrated a little bit. And probably you're going to come out ahead blindly backing the 0-1 against the 1-0, especially if the team that's 0-1 just had a really disappointing performance. I know, um, for instance, like the Cowboys, when they only score three points, you know that McCarthy and company are going to work a little bit more on the offense and probably a team off a very, a very disappointing loss is going to be more significant than a team that lost maybe a 19-17 to game on a missed field goal at the end of the game. Yeah, makes sense. All right. A lot of good food for thought when it comes to the preseason. I also don't want to overlook the fact that the regular season is getting really close, and I'd be remiss not to walk through um, some of the regular season approach while I've got you. So are there any edges or angles you're looking at in 2021? Maybe a good refresher for just annual angles you've always kept in mind, or possibly something like load management being new this year with the extra game. Maybe that could open up some betting opportunities. Yeah, you know, a unique week one approaches us because we're going to get three weeks of preseason. Then we're going to get a bye week. And then the teams are going to go ahead and play. You know, one of the trends that has really worked well week one is divisional dogs have done great historically. But there aren't very many divisional dogs. Um, and frankly, the ones that are out there aren't very attractive. Like I don't want to back Miami against New England, etc. So because of that bye week, though, I think any week one trends – I think we have to take a little bit, you know, with the grain of salt and be careful. You know, it's funny. I looked at Baltimore's schedule and I saw that five of the first, uh, they, had, they had a period of time, their last two preseason games and their first four games in the regular season, five of six were on the road. So I'm like, okay, one of my biggest bets of the year is going to be Denver week four hosting Baltimore. And I'm like, oh, but those two road games in preseason aren't going to matter because they get a week off before it all starts. Still not a good spot, third of four in altitude in Denver but not the monster it would have been had they had to go ahead and get on planes those last two weeks of preseason. Yeah. And if they didn't have that buy, and maybe if they were playing at Denver one or two weeks earlier, I, I feel like that could have had more of an edge because once we're at week three or four teams are probably um, in, in peak 
physical condition. I know often weeks one and two, especially for the teams that take it easier in the preseason, there's a well-documented angle on, on Denver just being a really tough place to play at altitude. But yeah, by, by the time Baltimore gets there, they're probably going to be more or less fully up to speed. So um, I guess a near miss on that angle, but something that I know you also pay attention to that requires a lot of research right now. So a lot of people, even if they hear this, probably not interested in, in putting in too much work, but paying attention to who got the ball first. I know when betting and running, that can dictate a lot of where you're going to look to go. So how does knowing who got the ball first inform your approach if you're looking to bet and running? And um, I, I guess given the fact that I'll, even even with Don Best, you're not going to get that information clearly presented to you, what's it like trying to scramble to even get that info in the first place? So let me talk about the coin toss because this drove me crazy for years. You had two, like 10 years ago, you had two schools of thought. The people would bet the coin toss, bet on tails, never fails. Ridiculous, fails all the time. Um, and you had the people that would li literally go and criticize all the people betting on the coin toss as what fools they were. And then there was the third group that were like, both these groups are, are completely have no clue because you don't bet on the coin toss, you bet on who gets the ball. And there's huge edges that you could find in the NFL. Who gets the ball? Who's going to punt first? Who's going to score first? Who's going to win the first quarter? Because some NFL coaches would defer and some NFL coaches would go ahead and take the ball. Belichick always deferred unless there was like a tropical storm that was going to roll into the second half and he was weather related. And it just amazed me that it shows how far behind the NFL is. Billion dollar industry. Bill Belichick's a genius. He's the best coach and he defers. I don't need to know anything more. I will defer as well. Even the black box, I don't know why the man does it. The reason you do it is your defense is a little bit more tired in the third quarter. So the offense has a slightly bigger edge to start the third quarter. So that's optimal to defer more often than not. But now everybody defers. So that edge is gone. Now, whoever wins the coin flip is not going to get the ball. But where the, uh, the information is still important is you need to know who got the ball to live bet because you need to know who gets the ball to start the third quarter because that's obviously an edge in the second half and it drives me crazy that I have to actually, I'm so old school here. I've got on, you know, um, my um, direct TV and I literally have the schedule and I just take a black marker and whoever gets the ball, I black that team out. And so whoever's not blacked out gets the ball to start the third quarter. I'm frantically going through nine games that start early because no one can like just put a little football on their screen showing me, oh, that team got the ball to start the first quarter. And I know it's easy to do, but you know what? You're doing a zillion things otherwise as a pro better. And in college, it's a real pain in the neck to have to go in and actually, you know, look up the box score for each one of these games to know who gets the ball second half. So just um, something that really would be a benefit if somebody would offer that on their site. I think Sports Memo was doing that for a while, but then they ceased doing it. I don't even know if Sports Memo now, if it's Wager Talks, taking them over completely. But I don't know anyone that's providing that information and someone really needs to provide it. Yeah, I, I can relate. I know that it was helpful last year to know on a given week, there were probably a few coaches who'd be likely to, to uh, receive if they won the toss. And I, I would find a lot of that information just by going on Twitter myself right after games kicked off. Just, you know, if it was the Hall of Fame matchup Steelers-Cowboys, I'd just look up Steelers-Cowboys coin toss. If that didn't give me a clear result, Steelers defer, Cowboys defer, Steelers receive, Cowboys receive all the permutations. And for one game, it's easy enough to figure that out. 
Obviously, if you're not concerned about the coin toss decision to defer or receive, to your point, you can pull up GameCast on ESPN or anything like that and just see which team started with the ball. But if it's even an NFL Sunday, if we've got 16 games or on a college football Saturday, forget about it. Are you going to do that for dozens of games that are all going on at the same time? So a quick visual could go a long way. And to put a pin on this point, I'll say that I'm uh, going to miss one element of Anthony Lynn's tenure with the Chargers. As a long-suffering Chargers fan, he would often receive when they won the kickoff. So knowing that going to Chargers games was really nice, and that's one less coach we've got in the league this year who's more likely than not to receive, rather than, like you said, just do the smart thing and defer. Absolutely. And unfortunately, like I said, everyone, every coach I expect to defer in the NFL. So that that's an advantage that is no longer there. You know, I, I did want to make a comment like, you know, with the with live wagering, that's become a bigger and bigger part of my betting portfolio. And when I sometimes guys ask me, oh, Fez, you want to meet me on Monday Night Football? You know, what's the game over, you know, at, at Caesars or something? And I'm like, that's not how any of the pros I know, you know, that, that that's an extremely profitable three hours of time, um, not just watching, drinking a beer and saying you're working, but actually betting and finding opportunities and, and betting props, um, you know, right up to kickoff and then um, uh, the like. And so when I see people going to a Super Bowl party, for instance, that hour before the Super Bowl kicks off is one of the most profitable times of the year. I can't imagine giving that up just to go to a party. I'll go to a I'll go to a party when they, you know, during the all-star break, you know, there's six months of the year to party. That, that is not the time to do it. Yeah. When you talk about live betting, it reminds me of David Malinsky, who I, I'd love to touch on in a bit with you having some great experience, having worked with him. He would talk about watching games, even in standard definition, so that when he live bet, the HD feed would be a little bit slower than standard def. So just to minimize the window, I know the books with their instant data feeds and now the things that, you know, deck prism is doing, it's, it's tough to stay nearly current up to the second with a book, but little edges like that, just to keep yourself a little more informed than everybody else who's betting live, that can go a long way. And to your point, it's fun to, you know, to kick back, watch a game and, and relax. But if you're looking to live bet for profit, then then there are some subtle edges to get that you should probably just really focus on the task at hand. Right. And not getting it in high definition. Maybe you can pass post a slow moving book on a play. But more importantly, and more likely, you just get 10 more seconds to evaluate the play in terms of what the line should be so your brain doesn't have to operate as quick. In terms of chess, it's very similar. Live betting is like speed chess. When, it, when it's live betting, that's not during a timeout. Um, and you really need a book that instantaneously accepts your bet. You can't have the nonsense of the, the pinwheel, you know, waiting, does it get approved? Hey, I bet it against this book. And hmm. I'm waiting for it to be approved. And the team I bet on throws an interception and it seems to get approved all the time. And I get a first down, nope, not approved. Line has changed. Yeah, I think one of the best tips, unless somebody knows they have a book that's uh, really going to be fair about that, probably stick to betting during a game when there's a timeout just to yes. avoid the information disadvantage because odds are overwhelmingly in the book's favor when it comes to accepting a bet and running. They're not going to take something that works against them when they might be a step ahead of you when it comes to the real-time action. The problem is, is that some of the very biggest advantages come with plays that occur that are subtle um, during the play of the game, mm -hmm. and you, you, you don't want to wait till the timeout. So, yes, it's, uh, you just got to find books that instantaneously accept wagers. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a good, I'd say, healthy tension there.
Well, there's a couple other angles on the regular season that I'd love to run by you. One that, um, again, a David Malinsky term, one that was a meal ticket for me last year was finding good numbers for shortest touchdown under one and a half. A lot of that just it's a secondary effect of scoring being at an all time high. And I think it was really helpful that road teams, when they were deep in the red zone on key third downs, without crowds, or at least without big crowds, they could communicate oftentimes just as well as the home team. So that extended a lot of drives and, and really kept things on a level playing field, regardless of who was home or away. So this year, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on the prop. I think it was so generous last year that some books would be offering a game blind at 54 and a half. This prop would be, you know, maybe minus 130 when a place like Bookmaker or Chris would have it rightly at minus 180. So I'm going to be keeping a close eye on those numbers again, but I know that crowd noise is coming back. I also know that we're going to see fewer and fewer decisions, hopefully, uh, that would replicate what a coach like Mike Vrabel did in the playoffs, punting on fourth and two from his own 40. So I think that it's going to be interesting to see smarter coaches making more optimal decisions, also not kicking a 19-yard field goal on fourth and goal from the one versus the effect that crowd noise might have on suppressing some of those road teams being able to convert on key downs late in opponent territory. I think it's a great point, and obviously a volume game. If you're going to get a whole lot of touchdowns, probably you're going to get a one-yard touchdown as part of it. You, know, you mentioned the 19-yard field goal. Um, I got people arguing with me about this. If you're fourth and goal from the one, I almost think in certain circumstances we can have a conversation. Is it better to kick a field goal or take a knee? And it's better to kick the field goal, but you know what? We can have a conversation. It's not that much different. And the ludicrousness is, of course, if I run the ball, I might actually score seven points. So um, the and you see that a lot of times early in the game, coaches have this. We want to take the lead. We we don't we we don't want our team to go on a long drive and not get anything for it. Well, in many ways. When you kick a field goal, you really do get nothing for it because you're getting just slightly more than what your expectation was for your first drive. Whereas um, if you if you stick the other team, if you don't get any points, but you stick the, the other team on the one, you're getting something for it as well and huge field position. So um, you'll see that. You see that every year, coaches all the time. Well, Tomlin is the king of it. Tomlin will go for it a lot of times for two when the math says it doesn't matter because, you know, you have to get one point or two points, and it's about 50-50. But yet he will not go for the touchdown that's worth seven, and you have the field position advantage as well, obviously, because if you kick a field goal, you get screwed on field position. If you don't get the touchdown, you stick the other guy in the one. That is the most ridiculous, um, inconsistent coaching, and really what comes down to is I'm sure he's just thinking to himself, do I think we're going to make it? All right, then I'm going to go instead of the math is overwhelming. Yeah, I like your point about getting an opponent pinned at its own one. Even if you didn't score on the previous drive, that does give you something to show for it. And I, if you want the truth on that, I would say just flash back to this past Super Bowl, a better like myself who was on shortest touchdown under one and a half and found a good number on no safety. There was, I believe, Kansas City. No, this would have been Tampa Bay had a fourth and goal from the one. They rightly went for it, and they didn't make it. So then Kansas City takes over at their own one. I'm thinking, great. I, I just lost a good opportunity to cash that shortest touchdown prop. Luckily, there was a Tom Brady pass to Antonio Brown that got that home. But at the time, that still hadn't cashed. And then there was the potential double whammy of now the Chiefs taking it their own one. You might also lose the safety bet. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're feeling that that is a better, I guarantee the Chiefs would have 
you know, been happy not to start on their own one. So there's a lot more that goes into it than just thinking, okay, three points is better than zero. It's pretty amazing that Tampa Bay absolutely blew out Kansas City, given they, they left seven points, you know, on the drawing board, you know, early in that game. Um, I really love the prop. You know, and we spoke about Tommy that, you know, the hitman is like the king of props and, and getting value there. And he really gets it. Um, the only problem with the props is you, you get limited so much at different books that, and, and I'll go ahead and say for people that are listening, it, that want to win, if you really want to win, I can guarantee you win. I mean, go ahead and talk to Matt and give Matt your information and get me an account um, that you have. I'll give you a 20% free roll on it. I'll give it to somebody else. They'll win. You'll probably get kicked out and lose your account. And I certainly have friends that would like nothing better than have accounts that they can just win on and get 80% of the profits and guarantee it because, and you're like, well, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they just bet on their own accounts? Well, they don't have any accounts because they've been kicked out of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's always such a delicate balance. And one more bet that gets at this, this is the last regular season NFL angle I wanted to run by you would be looking into teasers. I know there are precious few books still offering minus 110. In Vegas, you're probably hard-pressed to find a minus 120 if you want to tease through three and seven in either direction. Fortunately, I am uh, just clinging with my life to a couple offshores that still have minus 110 teasers that can cross through you know, that key corridor of three and seven. On the Dream Preview recently, you did caution, however, against teasing road favorites down. And my initial thought was one of curiosity where... I've got to assume the fact that a team is on the road is built into the price. So maybe there's some underlying logic to your point, though, when it comes to teasers, and maybe there's something with variance that I'm missing. Could you explain why teasing road favorites down might not be the best idea, even if a seven and a half point road favorite is rightfully favored by that number and everybody knows they're on the road? Well, you nailed it. It's the variance, the volatility. If you look at the money line of an eight point um, road favorite, it'll be lower than an eight point home favorite because um, you've typically in a situation like that, you have a far superior team and maybe they'll be flat. So you'll see more upsets, um, all things being equal. And let's face it, when you tease a seven and a half point favorite, you're really betting them on the money line almost essentially. And if um, they lose the game, you lose. And that happens. There's more upsets that occur with a home dog than with a, a road dog with an eight-point favorite. Got it. Okay, makes sense. And I will gladly take your word for it because I have not done all that research. But uh, yeah, I, I would say the logic seems to check out there. Um, last question while we're on the NFL. If there's anything, without tipping your hand too much, I'm wondering if there's any pick or angle you'd be comfortable sharing with the audience, not so much looking purely for picks, but really curious about the process behind it, trying to uh, just teach people, myself included, how to increasingly think more like a long-term winner. Sure. Um, pay more attention to games that are played outdoors with um, spotty weather forecasted. Those are the games that you could have significant um, impacts in the props for the players and for the scoring because of the, the weather. So all things being equal, it should be easier to win a game that's played in Chicago with snow flurries forecasted than to win a game that's being played in the New Orleans Superdome or whatever they're calling it this year. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can't keep up with it, but cool. Thank you. That makes sense. I would like to touch briefly on college football as well, because you've mentioned that you're specializing in the big 10 this season. So uh, what would you say is your rationale for deciding to go ahead and specialize in one of the major conferences in college football, but kind of tune out 
everything else going on across the college landscape? Yeah, so clearly you need to specialize because there's just too many games. And I know there's people like, I know them all. Well, there's uh, if there's 120 teams you're going to follow, I know there's more than that, and you spend three minutes a day on each team, now you're working full-time. I don't think three minutes is probably sufficient to spend on Michigan State each day to become an expert on Sparty. Um, all right, so let's pick a conference. And then the old school was like, let's pick the Sun Belt. Let's pick the Mac. No one else is paying any attention, and that makes sense. But the problem is the menus and the live wagering on the Sun Belt and the Mac and the Mountain West aren't that extensive. So I think with the product exploding in terms of how much is offered and with so much live wagering being offered on the big five conferences, I think you should pick one of them to be your go-to because you're going to get so many different betting opportunities, prop betting opportunities that um, your acumen in that conference is going to be best rewarded if you have one of the major ones where you can bet more stuff. Makes sense. And I would think it's probably no coincidence that you picked the Big Ten, if I'm correct in assuming that being a Northwest grad had something to do with that. And on that note, I, I would like to dig into fandom and the notion of it being a, a double-edged sword at times, kind of the, the knowledge that you have being a fan of a team versus the emotional ties you can have. It was really helpful um, getting some perspective on this when I had pro better Rob Pizzola on the show earlier this offseason. He's a Cowboys fan. Um, as a USC grad, I know that um, I've, I've been through a roller coaster with them over the past decade. And in fact, in 2017, when I was hosting the House of Yards podcast with Dave Molenski, we had about a month-long fade of the Trojans, and it was probably the most profitable college betting month of my life. So I think the key is to be as objective as possible, even when you are a fan. And it's perfectly fine to be a fan. We're all human. You don't want to just totally approach it like a robot. But at the same time, it can be really valuable knowing when to bet on or against your team. And if you're not comfortable with that, if you always want to bet on them because that's your team, or if you like the emotional hedge of betting against them, because then if they win, you're happy they won. If they lost, you're happy that your bet won. Um, just accepting that that approach can be minus expected value in the long term. Um, what's your approach getting at the Big Ten as a specialist coming at it from the perspective of a Northwestern grad? You know, I don't think I can really address it because I'm just not a fan of anybody anymore. So I'm a mercenary. I'm just trying to make good bets. I will say this. It, 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 I, I see, and this is really largely men. I know there's some women that this applies to as well, that they're Blackhawks lose and they're depressed for a week and they're down. And I don't get it. It's like when you're seven in Little League, you know, and, and, the, and, the, and, and, and someone cries after they lose a game and like and, and the adult says, you know, just go out there and do the best you can. You know, it's like this is fun. You know, it's what, what, what are you doing? And yet you grow up and become an adult. And now, you know, there's people that have to raise autistic children. There's people that have to take care of their sickly parents. Who cares if your Boston Red Sox lost? Get a grip, guy. It is not a significant thing. If you're having massive mood swings because your team loses, your emotional intelligence needs to be raised. Apologies to all those I offended. I love that. And I'd like to underscore that point because it embarrassingly probably took well into my mid-20s before I decided to take the perspective that on a given day, if my team won, that can't be the best part of my day. And if my team lost, that can't be the worst part of my day. Of course, if the Chargers ever won a freaking Super Bowl, that's going to be the best part of that day, and that's perfectly fine. But as a rule of thumb, probably 99% of the time, that framework has gone a really long way. It's also helped being more objective as a better. So I think from, you know, whether you're looking at it to get more edges in betting 
or to your point, just overall well-being and a healthier perspective on life can't agree strongly enough. And again, apologies to all those. There's nothing wrong with being a fanatic and rooting for your team and supporting them. I, I, that, that is a okay. Yeah. We don't want to take away the human element here, but maybe just try to find a healthier balance. You know, I do want to say with the fans, my God, why is everyone other than the Duke crazies so horrible at maximizing their home court advantage? Okay. I give the Phoenix guy credit. That's counting out the hundred dollar bills. That's clever. But how good would it have been when Giannis is shooting free throws to go four, five, seven, 11, 17, you know, just like, like have it on the scoreboard nonsensical because the whole point is to distract a player. If everybody does the same thing with their thunder sticks and the like, it's not distracting. It just becomes part of, you know, the, the background. You would think someone would come up with a way to pre-practice so everyone will stop hitting the sticks together half a second before he releases. Yeah, it becomes white noise at that point. And as you discuss that, it brings me back to, again, my college days at USC at the Galen Center watching basketball games. Something that I, I will not say that USC's college basketball crowd is anywhere near the top in terms of home court advantage. But something that blew me away in terms of its effectiveness was, let's say the shot clock got down to eight. We would start counting down from five. And time and time again, the away team will just flail a crazy shot with four seconds left, and they could have worked for something much better. So, yeah, just trying to do something a little bit different can really go a long way. Yeah, sit under the basket and hold up your 25-pound comfort rabbit and let the uh, the shooter go ahead and react to um, a, a rabbit that would scare the crap out of even the general and watership down. Yeah, love it. Well, uh, yeah, I like that perspective. Maybe not taking it too seriously and getting too beat up if your team loses, but also being into it enough to have fun and do something different. And hey, if you care about your team that much, maybe try to add to their advantage when you're watching them play in person. Yes, uh, probably. Maybe you're crossing the line when you start like citing their DUIs and the exact dates of it. But uh, <laughs> hey, if it's a big game, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they've heard worse. Well, I, I would also like to make sure that we touch on um, a little bit of the betting content space. I know you're doing a lot of great work there. And I'd like to begin with who I'd consider the greatest of all time when it came to betting content. And that would be somebody we both knew, the legend, David Malinsky. To me, he was both a friend and a father figure, also a partner and a mentor. And listening to the Dream Pod with you and Dave was such a formative time in my betting career. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And I'd like to thank you while we're having this conversation for participating on a 60th birthday tribute I did for Dave on this show on December 30th of 2020. You mentioned how well-rounded he was, and he really maximized everything Vegas had to offer. So I'd love to touch on that a bit. But first, I also know you had a really special glimpse into Dave's life working with him purely in a football capacity at times. So what was that like? I've heard so many great stories about how Dave knew so much about Vegas beyond sports, but really the the elite level that he could operate at when it came to football specifically seemed like it was almost unmatched. Yeah, he was the rare person that had this great sports acumen knew his stuff completely, and yet did have a life. So he would talk about, I remember one time he was talking about, um, he had a plane and he had like two, it's, it, we are talking props and hops. So he had like two, I can't even remember, like ice ice wines or something. I don't even recall what they were that he almost left on the overhead. And then he's like, he got yes. him back and the like. And, you know, very active, very fit, you know, love the outdoors, love the mountains like John Denver. Um, and you just don't see enough of that. A lot of the other handicappers, you know, they sit around, watch the games, and 
they handicap the games and they don't really seem to have an other aspects of their life. And Dave was truly the very you know well-rounded person where I would imagine he would have done quite well just going on Jeopardy and be able to answer, you know, questions about Hamlet as well as about every aspect of sports betting. Yeah, I mean, he would at times weave Shakespeare into his point blank column. So I, I totally agree there. And I'd like to second the point about how successful he could have been without sports even being part of his life. I mean, he seemed to know every mom and pop restaurant. He's the reason I go to Lotus of Siam every time I'm in Vegas. When it came to classic rock, uh, I think he had every National Geographic edition published in my lifetime. He would sometimes read Sophocles to unwind at night. Uh, when it came to beer and spirits and wine, he he could go toe-to-toe with anybody. And it just boggles my mind to think we all get the same 24 hours every day. He was just the rare breed that mastered the art of making every minute count. Yes. And um, I'm embarrassed to say I've been known to unwind by watching like Rocky Three for the 111th time or uh, even an underrated, terrible movie, 1978 Stingray, uh, world's greatest villain. Um, Murray Lonigan, if you've never seen it. And I know you haven't because no one has. That's Stingray. That's my best bet. And I think Dave would just shake his head and say, I think I'll stick with the Shakespeare. Well, yeah, he would probably just say, uh, I remember once I, I made some kind of point and he's like, we'll file that under A for ain't gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. But uh, maybe, you know, I'll keep that on my radar. I know it's football season coming up. It's a busy time for all of us. But uh, maybe once we're post-Super Bowl, that, that could be a great time to just take advantage of that side of life as well. So Absolutely. one more note in the betting content realm that I'd like to get into with you would be to, to touch on your work with pregame.com. And uh, to be clear right up front, people who want to follow your picks, they can find you on pregame and only on pregame. So we want to be as clear as day about that. I know there are some imposters out there, but if you're not following Steve on pregame, then you're not following Steve Fezzik. So everybody should be mindful of that. And when it comes to pregame, I know across the betting space, it can be a little bit polarizing with some pick selling going on. And, and at the same time, I'm approaching this from the standpoint of without RJ Bell's appearances with Colin Cowherd and hearing about pregame, I never would have discovered Dave's work. I never would have discovered your work. I can guarantee we wouldn't be having this conversation. And some of the best moments in my life over the past decade wouldn't have come to fruition. So I'm so grateful for a lot of the work that goes on there. And at the same time, I know that sometimes it can be a touchy topic and it's a bit polarizing in the industry. So to hear from you directly, how would you describe your point of view on your time with pregame selling picks and and everything that goes on with that operation being a professional better and also um, working with pregame? Yeah, I would recommend everyone pregame probably be unhappy for me saying this, but not actually they'd probably be happy. I would certainly look towards if you're going to get a handicapper that you think is adding value buy them in an annual package. Do your homework, make sure you're comfortable with them. It is so difficult to win if you're buying on a daily basis and so you're paying $15 for one pick and then $25 for another pick and you just add it up. Your best chance of winning is to go ahead and buy an annual package. Let your handicapper work for you for the year, but you've got to do your part. You've got to be ready when he releases to be able to get down. You've got to have multiple books in order to be able to benefit and you can't be paying $1,000 for someone for a year and then betting $100 a game because now you, you've got to win 10 units just to break even right off the bat. So really, I would not ever purchase a pick unless you're betting north 
of, you know, a couple hundred dollars per game. Otherwise, you're much better off just listening to podcasts like yours and others and gathering information. So if you can do your handicapping yourself, but you can supplement that with getting information from people. If you're betting a hundred dollars or less per game, I would not buy any picks. Don't buy from me. It, it doesn't make sense. The implied VIG is too high. Only buy from me when you want to be a really serious better. Cool. Well said. Well, I appreciate the context and the honesty there. And, and we can start to wrap something up with a question I like to ask every guest. Your last answer would, would be a totally acceptable response, but maybe there's something else that comes to mind. I love to ask somebody who's a professional better like you, what advice you might have for, I don't know if the right label is Rec Plus or Aspiring Sharp, but betters who have multiple accounts. They're price sensitive in shop lines. They listen to conversations like this to try to find some edges. So they're above average at betting, but they're not on the cusp of going pro. What do you think a lot of betters in that position could do to increase their ROI throughout the arc of their betting careers? Expand, get good at all kinds of, aspects of gambling because it will make you better across the board. Winning a poker is easy. I defy anyone to tell me they don't win a poker that has studied the game and follows the rules, if you will, for six months. Now, blackjack is really the same, but the problem with blackjack, your edge is so small, I would never recommend you do that. So once you start playing as a poker player and you start winning, which you will, if you and you just have to play tight pre-flop, don't play that many hands, but on occasion, you have to be a semi-maniac when you do play the hands because you can't be predictable. Um, but Ed Miller, get Ed Miller's books. I, I would, I'll make the case only buy Ed Miller's books. Don't buy anybody else's. Do what Ed Miller tells you to do, and you will win. If you don't win, I will meet you at a poker table, and you can, we can play. And I'll either tell you what you're doing wrong, or um, I'll buy you dinner because winning a gambling is not difficult. Now, sports winning at sports betting is more difficult than winning at poker, but you see where I'm going, that winning begets winning. When you you suddenly, you, be, you learn to be more disciplined. You learn, hey, you know, I'm doing the right things. I'm being patient at a poker table. I don't play for two orbits. Um, I don't need to bet the Monday night game side or total. I'm going to look deeper. I'm going to look towards the props. I'm going to look in the meantime to getting more outs. And there's going to be times I have no opinion on the game. And you know what? I've got the U.S. women minus 16 and a half, and I got the other side plus 19 and a half just because I'm paying attention to the market. I'm playing for middles that I know are profitable and the like, and just becoming a very disciplined better when it comes to those things. Um, one thing that stands out to me, it's amazing to me how the old guys who've been in the business that have won for years, they're almost never like are super excited about an NFL side or a college football side as the game approaches. They're like, yeah, the number's pretty, it's pretty much where it should be. But the young guys who've only been playing, you know, for a year, may have had a good year. They're like, this is my game of the year. This is I love this play. It's going to win 65 percent. As those guys get older, they realize, you know what? Yes, there may well be some 60 percent plays that you can bet early in the week. But by the time the games are kicking off, this is a pretty darn efficient model. It is rare you're going to find really good bets in sports betting. Contrast that with poker. You're going to have times all the time when you get it all in. And you're, you know, 80% favorite with kings against fives. Yeah, well, that was so well said. I'm probably going to clip it. And if I don't just save it for myself, I'll, I'll try to get it out to a broader audience, maybe on Twitter at some point shortly down the road. Um, I, I can't think of a better way to end the conversation on a sports note. Um, final question for you, weaving in the other pillar of this podcast, the hops, bringing it full circle from how we started the conversation. Uh, the Timbo Pills is, is almost done. It, it's been a great 
uh, sidekick to this conversation. But what would you say are some of your favorite beers or, or breweries that you've enjoyed in Vegas or, or perhaps anywhere else that you've been in your beer drinking career? I'm completely out of my element. I will just cite Ellis Island because they're a brewery and they have great food. So I'm sure the root beer is great. So I'll recommend non-alcoholic, their root beer. Um, I will say, let me teach you how to drink for free in Vegas because you never should pay for a drink in Vegas. If you put $20 into a video poker machine at the South Point or Green Valley Ranch or any place like that and only play when the bartender's watching you, it'll cost you like 50 cents in expectation. You can drink for free. Um, you go up and bet $100 on a sports bet. You can get a couple drink tickets. Randomly bet that's going to cost you $4.50, the implied house vig. Or just go to a craps table, buy in for 200 at a local place, 500 on the strip. You don't even have to make a bet. Just wait for the cocktail waitress to come around. Go ahead and root for the other players. Maybe put $5 down on the pass line. That costs you $0.07. Cents. House Edge, 1.4%. So you can drink for free in Vegas. Have a good time doing any one of those um, methods. There is no reason to ever pay for a drink in Las Vegas. I love that tip. Some of my favorite Vegas experiences on the non-sports gambling side of things have been sitting down at a table for a bit. And I, I would play, but the goal is often, especially when I was learning games for the first time, like craps and blackjack, if I could break even but play for a few hours and, and get a few free drinks, that felt like you know a bigger win for me than the guy next to him if he won a few hundred dollars or, or more. So but I the love problem that is you, you have to think when you play blackjack. Even if you have the card that, they, right. that, that shows you basic strategy, you still have to think. The beauty of craps is that you don't have to think. Yeah, good point. Always uncovering every subtle edge, whether it's a sports bet or not. And I also love your point about Ellis Island for the food and the environment. I would say that um, it's great to enjoy, you know, a really good beer like the one I'm drinking now, where some in you know, LA is just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the craft beer scene. But in the right environment, whether that's, you know, the, the people that you're with, the right food pairing, um, the right game to watch, or there's so much more that goes into it than the liquid itself. So I like your point about even if you're having a root beer at Ellis Island, that can be a better drinking experience than maybe having a really nice beer and not so nice surroundings. So I, I like just keeping that proper perspective as well. Maybe it ties back in with the perspective we were talking about with sports fans, not living and dying to such an extreme with their team's wins or losses every day. And as far as L.A., best bet, I'm a huge believer. Go to New Newport Beach and south of there. Go eat at Las Brisas in Laguna Beach. Go down to Monarch Beach in Dana Point. I am shocked what's well, already really crowded, but I'm shocked that everyone doesn't make that their getaway because I think that that's like the hidden gem in terms of vacationing in, in Southern California of where to go from Fashion Island all the way down, like I said, to Dana Point. Yeah, can't disagree there. Well, Steve, uh, as we get on out of here, I want to make sure we plug your work. People can find you on Twitter at Fezic Sports, also on Fox Sports Radio on Straight Out of Vegas. A couple podcasts you're regularly on, of course, the Dream Preview, as well as Even Money with Ross Tucker. And for getting your picks, again, that's pregame.com and only at pregame.com to follow Steve's picks. Is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? Blue Horseshoe loves the New York Mets to collapse and miss the playoffs. Currently available plus 105 DraftKings. Best bet. All right. I know what my first move is going to be once we're done recording here. So, Steve, I'd like to thank you so much for this conversation. It's been such an honor. And uh, I look forward to your insight for another NFL season just around the corner. And hopefully we can meet up at some point soon in Vegas. I know you said never to buy a drink in Vegas, but I would be more than happy to buy you a good beer or cocktail 
once we can uh, hopefully get together in person out there before too long. Oh, we'll get it, Compton. Matt, my thanks. Thank, thank you for having me on your outstanding podcast. Thanks again. Goodbye. Thanks again to Steve Fezzik. If you enjoyed our conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Friendly reminder to go ahead and check out the new BetUS NFL show I'm hosting with Las Vegas Chris and Scott Kellen. In fact, if you're hearing this on Tuesday, August 10th, our first show is today. You can check it out via the link in the show notes. And lastly, if you're interested in a real-time conversation with me and the Dimers.com community of more than a thousand fellow bettors and counting, join us for free on Discord. I've also dropped a link to that in the show notes. And otherwise, that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. And until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. Ooh, I-